This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. This person's name is uh, Kokyo, and uh, he's been um, flapping his gums a lot this week. trying to express some devotion for our Zen ancestors. We're in the middle of a retreat uh, where we're looking at the the transmission of light record, the Denko Roku, so we're calling this retreat Denkoe, the transmission of light assembly. And uh, we're studying... uh, Japanese Zen ancestor Keizan's comments on the Indian ancestors, Zen ancestors of our tradition. In Zen, we celebrate um, an unbroken lineage of light uh, transmitted from Shakyamuni Buddha uh, 2,500 years ago up to today. And uh, also I've been mentioning some comments from Kazan, so he's 14th century Zen ancestor, who wrote this transmission of light record, spoke it actually. And uh, he also wrote a text called uh, Points to Keep in Mind for Zazen, the Zazen Yojinki. <clears throat> so... This is just, um, since we're doing a lot of zazen this uh, week and this lifetime, uh, here's some bits and pieces of Kazan's words about it. <clears throat> zazen instructions. He says, uh, <clears throat> contemplate impermanence and don't forget it. This will encourage your aspiration for the way. Uh, excellent advice, I would say, from Keizan Zenji. A kind of, a part of his zazen instruction is to contemplate impermanence. Contemplate how um, this lifespan is limited and uh, this Five-day sashin is even more limited. It's mostly over already, and it just started. <clears throat> this Dharma talk's almost over already. Quick. <laughs> Be present for this quickly passing life. This limited lifespan, we don't know when it will end. So uh, contemplate and remember impermanence again and again. I like to do this as a kind of daily practice, even if briefly. Remember that this life is impermanent and feel a little, a little jolt of uh, renewed aspiration to practice because... Uh, now is our chance. Now is only ever our chance.
If not now, then when? Now is the time to be present, to be devoted to now. So Kazan says, contemplate impermanence and don't forget it. This will encourage your aspiration for the way, your wholehearted, selfless aspiration to practice and verify the Buddha way. And uh, Kazan also says, always remember compassion and dedicate the limitless merit and virtue of Zazen to all living beings. In Sashin, that's one way we can practice compassion. Uh, Remembering that uh, there is suffering in this world, ourselves and others, and wanting to alleviate it. This is the, the Buddhist meaning of compassion. Wanting everyone to be free from suffering and discontent. <coughs> and one way we can practice this compassion in Sashin is to to uh, sit Zazen for the benefit of all beings. And then as Kazan says, at the end of the Zazen period, we can dedicate the, the limitless, boundless merit and virtue of Zazen. It's inconceivable, the the merits and virtues of Zazen. At the end of Zazen, um, we can silently say, I dedicate the merit of this Zazen period to um, the total freedom from suffering of all beings. May they all benefit from this Zazen. So we can practice Zazen in this way. At the beginning of Zazen, make an aspiration that the next period of Zazen will be for the benefit of everyone and the relief of suffering of everyone. And at the end, dedicate the merit, any benefit from the Zazen to all beings. And we might think that, well, my Zazen is like, doesn't have that much merit and virtue and I don't know how it benefits anyone. Where, where is there any merit there to dedicate? But just the intention to um, sit down and be present, <clears throat> however small it might be, uh, there is merit and virtue in this. It's a very rare thing in this world right? to um, sit down with the intention of being present uh, for half an hour or five days. <clears throat> Such a rare thing. And so even if we feel like we're not doing very well at it or something, it's amazing just the fact that we're willing to sit down and be still like this. I call it merit and virtue. And we can offer that to everyone. It makes our zazen less about like some personal thing that I'm trying to get from my zazen. That might be there, but we, it's expanding the field of zazen and the intention of zazen to let it be for the benefit of everyone in inconceivable ways and uh, 
and conceivable ways. Like the more relaxed and present we are, the more we can share that with everybody. That's very practical. I think we, we know this. It's partly why we're here. <clears throat> and uh, what is this zazen anyway? Keizan Zenji uh, begins his his uh, his uh, zazen instructions by saying, defining zazen. <coughs> zazen means to clarify the mind ground and dwell comfortably in your true nature. That might seem kind of abstract, though. So we might want some practical method for doing so, for clarifying the mind ground, ground the basis of mind, and dwelling comfortably in our true Buddha nature. So... um, well, we've been talking about this this week, but uh, this morning I discovered a uh, slightly different way to talk about it, because I think we should try to talk about it from all different angles. And uh, and I thought, um, this might be nice to share with you all, <laughs> if you like, uh, See see if... See if this uh, rings true. So uh, <clears throat> you might have noticed that um, basically all day long, including during Zazen most of the time, that um, we are thinking. This is a unique thing for us humans. This amazing capacity humans have to think. We don't even have to try. It's happening all the time. Um, almost all the time. Sometimes we sit down, if we're, if we're new to zazen, to meditation practice, we sit down and we think, wow, I thought this was about like not thinking so much, but my thoughts are actually increasing. And, uh, probably what this means is that the thoughts aren't really increasing, it's just that we're becoming quiet and still, so we're noticing that there's thinking going on all the time. And then outside of Zazen, we just don't notice it so much, because we're busy. So, uh, yes, thinking. Sometimes it settles a little bit, um, but it's still like most of, of Zazen, <laughs> probably for most people, People who talk to me about their zazen, there's a lot of thinking going on, and uh, this is normal. We don't choose to think, and even if we choose not to think, it doesn't work, right? Because these thoughts arise according to conditions. They dependently arise if the conditions, um, if the mind is conditioned to give rise to thoughts, it does. And it is conditioned this way, as humans. 
and uh, these thoughts that are going on all day, even even when sleeping, I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but I notice it sometimes. I mean, there's deep sleep where there's no thinking, and there's dreaming while sleeping. Well, there is thinking usually during dreams, but there's also this kind of like undercurrent of thought. I notice sometimes, and someone might say, well, you're not really asleep, but I feel like sometimes I can even hear the snoring but there's there's a little bit of like thinking going on at the same time. Has anyone noticed that? This is how dominant thinking is, right? Even while we're sleeping, it's not like heavy duty, intense thinking, or then we're just awake. But even for sleep, because the body needs to rest, the mind is still kind of active. This is the human realm. So. Um, And these thoughts are uh, uh, sometimes pleasant thoughts, and they're sometimes unpleasant thoughts, <clears throat> as we all know. Of course, we like the pleasant ones, and we don't like the unpleasant ones. But we don't really have a choice, right? Because they are arising and ceasing, dependent on conditions. The conditions are already are kind of impersonal from the, our past and the rest of the world. So uh, sometimes they're really unpleasant, right? Very painful. We just wish these thoughts would end, and um, and we identify with the content of thoughts, and we uh, the thoughts are like commenting about ourself. These are the painful ones that sometimes that are like. Coco, you're not practicing very well. Um, you're just thinking all the time. Uh, why don't you just stop? Okay, I'll stop. I said stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what to do about that? Right. So um, we're trying to control the thoughts. The thoughts are trying to control us. There, we're identified with the thoughts as ourself. It's a it's a kind of messy situation. Sometimes they're kind of okay thoughts. We try to think of something nice. Sometimes it works a little while. But um, in Zazen, this is the practice that I kind of maybe rediscovered or this twist on the practice that uh, I really appreciated this morning is noticing how there's these thoughts arising and ceasing. And... Um, Basically, creating a new specific kind of thought. Since we're thinking anyway, <clears throat> we can't always control our thoughts, but, um, but, uh, we can, because the thoughts are rising according to conditions, but we can kind of create conditions or we can put ourselves in situations that kind of recondition our thoughts. So we have different kinds of thoughts. <clears throat> so like, that's one of the, one of the ways of looking at Sashin, like especially Dharma talks in Sashin, is that um, my job is to create um, conditions for for new thoughts to arise for all of us. So, um, so I'm going to describe this practice that might condition your thinking 
It might not, but if you, if you wholeheartedly attend to this, these, these thoughts, you can see <coughs> if they've come up during zazen. So, uh, there could be the thought that arises during zazen, if its conditions do arise. The thought, um, a thought that is kind of like a, um, a question, a kind of curious thought can arise during zazen, or you can try it right now, because this is zazen too. The thought um, may, might arise right now, and you're welcome to think it if you like. Uh, where are these thoughts happening? There's thoughts going on. Almost non-stop. So it's becoming kind of, it's a thought that is becoming kind of curious about the thoughts. Where are these thoughts happening? It's just another thought, but it's a, maybe a thought we've never thought before. But, um, since I brought it up, maybe, maybe you might think it. Where are these thoughts happening? Which thoughts, any thoughts that are happening right now, the present thoughts, right now the thought is this question, where are the thoughts happening? So we can apply it to this question, this thought. Where is this thought happening? Which thought? The thought, quote, where is this thought happening? Thoughts usually come in words. Have you noticed that? I I think thoughts are very language-based. It makes me wonder how uh, how babies, before they learn language, how their thinking works. I don't remember myself. Maybe there's not so much thinking here. It's just more like sensory experience. Because thinking is so connected with words and language. <clears throat> so there's a sentence that comes in words that can be a kind of a um, a thought for us called... Where is this thought happening? So it's asking about the location of the thought. Where is this thought? There is a thought happening. Where is it? Experientially, for us, where does it seem to be um, arising <clears throat> and happening? Any um, Any guesses that you all might say, when you, when you look, wondering where this thought is arising, where does it seem to be arising for you? In my awareness. Yeah. In my awareness. That's what it seems like for me too. It seems like the, like the thought is arising in awareness or in the mind. If you didn't have that thought before, now that you've heard that possibility, you can sort of try it on for yourself. Could it be that this thought that's arising right now and every thought that has ever arisen is arising in awareness, in the mind? 
you might say, um, not so much maybe based on direct experience, but on, on an idea, you might say, the thoughts arising in my brain. But, um, as far as I know, that, uh, like biologists, if they, um, were to dissect a brain, they would never find a thought in it. So I think that's more just an idea. It's not happening in the organ called the brain. There are areas of the brain associated with types of thinking, but you can't find the actual thought in the brain, right? Why can't you find it there? Because it's not a physical thing, right? So um, only physical things have locations. That may be obvious, but might not have ever had that thought before. Only physical, uh, material things have locations. Even things like, you might say like, what about, um, like radio waves? Something like that. Don't they, aren't they like kind of located? Yeah, but they're kind of physical. Subtly physical. They're measurable, right? But thoughts are um, not physical things, so they're not located in a physical brain. But experientially, they do seem to be um, arising within awareness, don't they? Within your awareness, isn't that where the thoughts seem to be? So we can ask this, this question, we can have this thought, where is this thought happening? And we can ask it as if, as if we're very curious and would like to know the answer. Where is this thought happening? And look and, and see. This thought's arising in awareness or in, in the mind. And the mind, um, in the mind or awareness, right? And then, um, we might feel that when we verify this fact, it shouldn't be that hard to verify this fact that this, the presently arising thought is happening in the mind. It's happening in awareness. And uh, we can directly verify it. We can, that we can keep checking it out till there's um, basically like no doubt about this situation. There is a thought arising, what I call a thought, and it is arising in awareness or in the mind, not somewhere else. It's definitely not arising outside the mind, or else I wouldn't know it. <laughs> right? So it must be arising in the mind. This is called verification. You can verify the fact experientially. This experiential fact that uh, this thought is arising in the mind or awareness. It's not that big a deal, but but it's maybe it's something we've never thought before. And um, it's maybe, it could be more interesting than some of our thoughts during Zazen. This is part of the trick, is to let this thought become more interesting than whatever else we're thinking in Zazen. To be kind of amazed by this thought. And it helps to be like on the fourth day of Sashin, <laughs> to be amazed by this kind of thought. Where is this thought happening? It's happening in the mind. It's happening in awareness. 
So um, that's one question we could ask, and we can verify it again and again and again and again. And <laughs> any any time a thought arises, this new thought called "Where is this thought arising?" is a kind of um kind of a hacker. It's a kind of hacking thought. It's kind of hacking into the system. The system's just chugging away, like thinking, thinking, pleasant, unpleasant, thinking, thinking. Ah, this thinking. This is like a kind of a we're hacking into the system with this with this rebel thought. <laughs> this rebellious thought that's like, wait a second, where is this thinking happening? It's kind of like it's kind of like um going into the um into the software. <laughs> The inner software and, and instead of just being involved in the content of thoughts, it's, what's going on here actually with these thoughts? They're happening in awareness. So then a second, once we verify the fact that the thoughts are happening in the mind, in awareness, then another question could arise. Very similar question. An- another thought, sort of part two thought is, um, where is this awareness or mind located? First question is, where is the thought located? It's located in mind <laughs> or awareness. Where is the awareness located? It's a little more subtle, maybe, but we're already on the right track. It's very similar to the previous question. The first question um, shifts our perspective ever so slightly from just being totally absorbed in the content of our thoughts to becoming curious about, um, not so much about their content. It doesn't even matter so much the content at this point. Just whatever thought it is, like, where is it? Where is it happening? So um, it's a little bit like a stepping back. It's a kind of learning the backward step. It's not really absorbed in the content of thoughts, but curious about the process of thinking itself. <clears throat> where is it? It's in awareness. So now our perspective has shifted ever so slightly from absorption in the thought to um, being a little bit in touch with the fact of being aware by asking this first question. It's happening in awareness. Now we're like, notice, oh, there must be some awareness here. There must be a mind. I didn't notice it before when I was absorbed in the content of the thought. Of course it was happening in the mind, but I forgot that because... I'm just more like, how can I stop these thoughts? Now I'm more like, oh, okay, they're happening in awareness. And now we're a little bit in touch with the fact of being aware. We're a little bit in touch with that there's a mind here. And then, now that we're a little in touch with it, we can ask this second question. Where is this mind? Where is awareness? in which all the thoughts are arising and ceasing. Where's the awareness? The thoughts are in the awareness, but where's the awareness? And if we look, and he guesses on where it is, 
mind. Big mind. I would say big mind is another name for awareness. So awareness is, where is it? It's in awareness, also called big mind. And where is this big mind awareness located? Here. Here. It's located here. And, um, and where is here? Everywhere. 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 Here is everywhere. The big here. Not like it's located right here. This little like spot. I mean, it is. You could say located here, but it's also located here, 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 which we also call everywhere. Or um, <clears throat> any other ways we could say it? These are all valid. Big mind, here, everywhere. Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> Nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. There is... Where is it? Where is awareness? Well, nowhere. <laughs> Not anywhere. Yeah, so they're all true, I think. Here, um, everywhere, and nowhere. Uh, <clears throat> but, um, and we can try all those on experientially and see if, if, if those answers ring true. Not theoretically. They might ring true theoretically, but experientially is the important part here. An experiential verification that thoughts are arising in awareness. And when we look for where awareness is located, it's definitely there is awareness, right? That's where the thoughts are arising. But where is it located? Well, nowhere. I think of, of these, of these various true answers, that um, in a way, nowhere is the most provocative and interesting um, uh, possibility. Because nowhere um, leaves no place to get a hold of anything. Nowhere is very similar to this to this uh, Dharma term emptiness. <clears throat> Awareness isn't anywhere, and therefore um, we can't get a hold of it. Physically, we can't get a hold of it, right? Because we can only get a hold of um, located objects, right? Physically, but even mentally, to get a grip on like like uh, something, to get a grip on like a feeling or a um, uh, To, to mentally uh, um, grasp a color or a sound, for example, <clears throat> we might feel like we can't, we're mentally grasping uh, the present color and the present sound. Um, but awareness, we can't grasp it. We can't grasp it. <clears throat> because it's not located anywhere, right? How strange that there can be... Um, an unlocated awareness that's not anywhere, which sounds like then it would be nothing at all, right? But it's not exactly nothing because 
it's aware and it, it's it's um, it's allowing all thoughts. If there weren't awareness, there couldn't be any thoughts. Thoughts have to ha- happen somewhere. They're happening in awareness, but awareness is not anywhere. So this is um, a kind of zazen practice. When in the midst of all this thinking, we can say, well, since I can't stop this thinking, how about just try um, a, a new kind of thinking? Well, um, do I get to decide what kind of new thinking? No, not really. Just like I don't get to control the thinking um, all day long, I don't get to really control it. But um, the Buddha teaches that thoughts arise dependent on conditions. So um, we've just created some conditions, of basically called hearing this new kind of thought, so that... Um, during zazen, you might remember it and um, think it. And if not, then then not. <laughs> you can also cut off your arm and, and uh, stand in the snow outside of Bodhidharma's cave. <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and Bodhidharma would say, "What's the problem?" <laughs> I've tried and tried. I can't pacify it. Ah, mm. Right? And Bodhidharma says, bring me your mind and I'll pacify it for you. Could you all hear that? Waco says, I looked and I can't find it. He said, there. So you're Bodhidharma. I don't have to do all these other things. If you, if the conditions are such that um, you feel impelled to cut off your arm, then it will happen. Like it sometimes happens according to conditions. And um, I hope that these conditions will not arise for any of us because, <laughs> because um, our arms are valuable. We can do good things with them. But uh, sometimes the conditions are such that uh, it happens. <clears throat> but um, sometimes the conditions are such that... Uh, that um, Someone asks Bodhidharma, um, my mind is not at peace. <laughs> um, can you please teach her, pacify it for me? And uh, Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I'll pacify it for you. And... Uh, and someone might then look for their mind in order to bring it to Bodhidharma and not find it anywhere. And then Bodhidharma might say, now it's pacified. <laughs> it's pacified by not finding it. Yes? In, in, the, in your talk and in Bodhidharma's the story, the... Awareness of the awareness and it changes the relationship to the contents. Yes. And so it creates a new, for lack of a better word, context. Yeah. To experience self. Yeah, it creates a new context, a um, a shift of perspective <clears throat> from um, and and a new. Um, you say perspective on the thoughts. On the thoughts, the feelings, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. But these these two questions, um, 
we kind of follow their thread and learn this backward step. Now, there's still thoughts happening, just like there were before. But, um, yeah, we have a new, you said relationship, a new relationship to the thoughts. That's right. They're still happening, but it's less like we're just totally absorbed in their content. It's more like we're, um, we're, we've stepped back a little bit from them. Where there's, there's uh, some space around the thoughts. <laughs> They're still happening, but, um, there's some space around the thoughts, and the space is what's called awareness. It's, if it's not located anywhere, it's like, it's like the space. It's a, you might say a kind of an inner space called awareness is kind of like outer space because, um, outer space is, um, not located anywhere. And yet it, um, it allows everything to, um, appear within it. Everything that's appearing here is appearing in outer space. So inner space is like this too. And, and regarding outer and inner, we can explore there too. Is there any actual boundary between outer and inner space? <clears throat> so, um, yeah, it's a different, uh, it's a shift of perspective. Another way to say it would be, um, we're usually very identified with our thoughts. We can feel like the thoughts are ourself. And so, um, when we're really, when they're really painful thoughts, we might feel like, I just can't stand myself that's having these thoughts. So it's almost like I am the thoughts. But this is, this shift of perspective is like, um, almost like expanding our identity from I am these thoughts to I am this, this space in which the thoughts are happening. We've expanded our identity from this narrow kind of, kind of claustrophobic self that's just like, is these unworkable thoughts that can't be stopped to more like, they're still going on, but they're not who I am anymore. They're not my identity. Who I really am is this spacious uh, presence that we call here, that we call everywhere, that we call nowhere, that we call now, that we call um, the ground of mind, um, we call true nature, that we sometimes call true self. But this is not a self that we can get a hold of. The Buddha said, don't identify with anything as yourself. And I think what he meant is, um, if you, if you identify with anything as yourself in a way that you can get a hold of it, this will be problematic. This will be the, the, the root of discontent. But if you can't get a hold of it at all, then, and you know that you really can't get a hold of it, then could you call it self? Some would say, no, still better not call it that because just to call it that well, creates a, a slight platform to get a hold of. But some might say, it's just a name. Um, we're allowed to call it that because it's not anything or anywhere, actually. 
Why might it be valuable to call it our self, our true self? Um, just to remind us of how intimate it is, that it's not some abstract space um, of the universe. It's us. It's actually who we really are. That might be one reason to uh, why some people say, let's call it our self. The term, the term that is most dear to us, the term most intimate to us is self. <clears throat> so, um, there's a little bit about Zazen that was practiced by, uh, all these, um, these Buddhas and Zen ancestors. <coughs> and, uh, in, in our lineage of Zen ancestors, the tenth ancestor was Venerable Parshva. So, um, I might say, well, now we got this great teaching of, um, of, uh, Something about what, the, where these thoughts are, and um, even like what these thoughts are. If they're appearing in mind, are they anything other than mind itself, taking the form of thoughts? Right. So why do we need these old stories on top of all this? Um, well, maybe we don't. <laughs> but. Um, but this is, uh, our, um, our Zen path is not just, um, jnana yoga, not just, um, uh, direct pointing to, um, how we know reality. We do emphasize that a lot in Zen. But it's also a bhakti yoga path of devotion. Uh, devotion is like surrendering our our imagined small self to something larger. And what's larger is um, the light. And there's this lineage of light. And uh, these people transmitted the light. So um, even if their stories might be boring, we're totally, totally devoted to them. At least I want to be. Uh, because they transmit the light. <clears throat> And it's, um, and it's, uh, if we, if we remember that these stories are about the transmitters of light, then, um, then maybe we can warm up to them more and more. The tenth ancestor was Venerable Parshva, or, um, in, this morning we chanted his name as Bodhisheba Daiosho. It seems like a Japanese transliteration of Sanskrit sometimes is a little bit garbled, but it's, it's close. Parshva uh, in Sanskrit means something like um, lying on one side. And uh, <clears throat> Parshva attended Venerable Buddha Mitra, the ninth Indian Zen ancestor, for three years without ever sleeping. <laughs> and then the translator put in parentheses, 
lying down. <laughs> but uh, the text says sleeping, but we could interpret it either way. One day, Venerable Buddha Mitra was reciting a sutra, and uh, a sutra that expounded the unborn nature of all things. like thoughts and colors and sounds. A sutra that expounded the unborn nature of all things. And hearing this, uh, Parshva was awakened to the way. That's um, how this ancestor um, opened to the light and the light was uh, transmitted when he heard about the unborn nature of all things. And here's a little bit about his story from these old Zen records. Parshva was from central India and his original name was Durjata, which means difficult birth. (coughs) Just before he was born, his father dreamed of a white elephant with a jeweled seat on its back. Uh, on the seat was a bright pearl, the light of which illuminated the fourfold sangha of um, male and female monastics and male and female lay people. And when he, he awakened from the dream, his son Parshva was born. So this uh, resonates with the story of the Buddha's birth where his mother also dreamed of a white elephant just before baby Buddha was born. So in this case, Parsha's father dreamed of a white elephant <clears throat> with, a, um, with a bright pearl on its back that illuminated the Sangha. Venerable Buddha Mitra, the ninth ancestor, was teaching in central India where there was an elder named fragrant canopy <clears throat> and uh, this elder arrived carrying his son and he bowed to venerable buddha mitra and said this child that i'm carrying was in the womb his mother's womb for 60 years and that re- for that reason he was named he is named difficult birth <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Dogen Zenji also tells this story in Shobogenzo Gyoji and, uh, and praises this ancestor Parshva. And uh, in Dogen's version, he just adds in that he was, when he was born, he was born with this long gray hair. Taesan doesn't say that part. <clears throat> um, I, um, difficult births, Father once met a wizard who told me that this person, my son, is no ordinary man and he will become a vessel of the Dharma. Now that we have met Venerable uh, Buddha Mitra, you, please, um, please let him leave home and ordain him as a monk. So Buddha Mitra 
had his head shaved and gave him the precepts. Parshva first aroused the aspiration for awakening after being in the womb for 60 years and then aging for another 80 years. So at this time when his father carried him in, it was 80 years after he was born. So, um, and he was in the womb for 60 years previously. So, as Kazan says, this is a total of 140 years. That's when he aroused bodhicitta, the aspiration uh, to realize awakening for the benefit of all beings. <clears throat> so, uh, he had grown old after already being born old. So that when he aroused this aspiration for awakening, everyone admonished him, saying, You're already so old. <laughs> Why do you want to waste your time being a monk? There are two kinds of monk, they told him, those who practice meditation and those who recite the sutras. And you're not up to either one of them, because you're so old. <laughs> When Parshva heard these worldlings criticizing him, he made a vow. I'm a monk, because I was just ordained. And until I realize uh, complete knowing of the three baskets of Dharma texts, called the Tripitaka, the... Uh, the um, Vinaya precepts, the sutras, and the uh, Abhidharma maps of mind. Till I um, know these three baskets and acquire the three kinds of spiritual knowing, the uh, Trividya, uh, which I'll mention in a minute, until I've understood these, all these Buddhist teachings and have these types of um, spiritual knowing, my ribs will not touch a sleeping mat. So that's why he um, is named Parshva, lying on the right side, that his ribs never touch the mat. And in Chinese, uh, his name is translated as ribs. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Ribs, because um, he vowed that his ribs will not um, touch the bed. In other words, he won't lie down. Vowing in this way, he studied and chanted the sutras by day and meditated and contemplated by night. And all the while, he never slept. <clears throat> so he's, he, he vows to study all the teachings of the Buddha, which are summarized as in the early teachings as the Tripitaka, the three baskets, all the um, the precepts, really understanding the precepts of conduct, how to live in this world in a harmless and beneficial way. <clears throat> and there's lots of volumes on how to do that. Study the sutras, um, how to understand this mind and how to practice meditation. And study Abhidharma, to really um, understand even more thoroughly what the sutras have taught in this methodical way. <coughs> and 
and then realize these three types of knowing. So this is just traditional Buddhist lists from old India. And since he's an Indian ancestor, this is the way he thought. And the three uh, vidya types of knowing are um, are what the Buddha realized on the on the eve of his awakening in the three watches of the night sitting under the Bodhi tree uh, the Buddha recounts the story of um, realizing a new type of knowing on each of these three watches of the night so the first type of knowing is um, remembering one's past lives this is the content of the of the Buddha's Night of Awakening, interestingly. Sometimes people say, well, did the Buddha even teach this rebirth or is something added in later? But in the Buddha's own words, um, not only was it a teaching, but it was, it was part of the content of his night under the Bodhi tree. The first part of the content was suddenly remembering that um, this whole thing didn't start with my birth as Siddhartha Gautama, <clears throat> that it's actually like beginningless. And I, re- I remember my mind is opening wider and wider, my storehouse consciousness um, from all this meditation is, is, um, is becoming more and more clear. And this, within this storehouse, everything from the past that's ever happened is, um, is in. Is consciousness and um, like a like a um, huge hard drive, uh, um, a uh, ten billion gigabyte hard drive. It's like and and uh, this is just the all of the information on there is being accessed. Uh, through his diligent meditation. He wasn't really trying to do this, but it's just, wow, I remember the life before this, and I remember the life before that, and before that, and before that, way, way back. I can't remember how the Buddha says it, hundreds and thousands maybe, of particular lifetimes without confusing them, because the hard drive is like that. But um, most of us were, were so caught up in the content of our present thoughts that, um, we, we can't, it's quite subtle, right, to access all of that. But the Buddha remembered, apparently, all these past lives. Whose lives? The teaching is that there's this, like, stream of conscious moments. There's a, a series of body and mind experiences arising and ceasing uh, moment to moment. <coughs> and uh, there's no owner of it. It's just, um, it's like a river flowing and, uh, and the river's carrying all these um, seeds of <coughs> past memories and um, karmic effects and so on. And, uh, and it doesn't stop at the end of this life, and it doesn't begin at the end of the next life. It's um, the body's um, the body's 
come and go, and the thoughts come and go, and the content comes and goes, but this stream of conscious moments uh, uh, continues in, this, in a particular way for for each for each individual, we might say, um, karmic stream. They don't got all mixed up according to the story. So, so the first um, watch of the night, the Buddha realized this this um, spiritual knowing is remembering his particular past lives. Not like there's some self that has these lives, but he remembering a particular karmic stream, not other people's. But then in the second watch of the night, the second kind of knowing came, the second vidya that was, um, you could say, accessing even more of the hard drive, which was not just his own individual karmic stream, but also like these past lives and kind of karmic history of like many, many, many other beings too. So, um, so maybe it was like this at first. It was like this individual um, stream of consciousness and then expanding that to like, I'm remembering all these other karmic streams too. I have access to all of it. Why? Could be because uh, this awareness uh, is not located anywhere. <laughs> it's so vast that... Um, it goes beyond the personal, um, individual stream of consciousness that we call an individual stream of lifetimes. It also is able to access all the other people's lifetimes and how these lives are, um, uh, arising and ceasing in different types of lifetimes and different types of sentient beings to according to karma. So it's like, if the first insight, the first kind of knowing of the Buddha was just remembering past lives, the second was watching how his and everybody else's lifetimes are happening according to to this particular causality uh, of karmic conditioning, that basically every moment there's an intention and... Uh, and an intention creates actions of body, speech, and mind, and that every one of them has an effect on the future of, of these um, streams. So, kind of like discovering karma, like kind of first-hand um, experiential version of karmic conditioning and painful um, lives arise due to um, harmful actions and Pleasant lives arise due to um, um, kind actions, and just in a very impersonal way, the Buddha is just sitting zazen under the Bodhi tree. It's like, really, is that how it works? <laughs> uh, beyond theories, it's the story is it was like a direct kind of witnessing of this um, kind of conventional um, workings of the universe how cause and effect and karma play out. And then the third watch of the night, just as the uh, dawn was breaking and the morning star was rising in the east, 
the Buddha um, realized the third most important type of knowing, which is um, knowing the end of ignorance. No longer uh, identified uh, with uh, this individual body and mind as himself, the Buddha, the Buddha's vast awareness included um, everyone and everything. <coughs> and uh, the morning star that always seemed like it was out there, way out there, not even in our Earth's atmosphere, suddenly he was the morning star. Now, no uh, grasper grasped duality. So, um, so that was the Buddha story, and that was Parshva knew about that. So he said, I vowed to study these three baskets of teachings, and I vowed to realize these three types of knowing that the Buddha realized. I think mm, not that many other people uh, in the pa- besides the Buddha realize all of that. It's important to realize the end of ignorance and delusion, but. Um, <clears throat> It doesn't always come along with remembering one's past lives, for example. But Parsha wanted to do it all. He wanted to uh, realize all, everything that the Buddha realized. And because of that, he was already 140 years old, right? So um, he maybe thought, I don't have that much more time left, probably. So um, I shouldn't bother, um, you know, sleeping. <laughs> Not because there's anything wrong with sleeping, but um, just I just don't have time. That's a lot to realize, right? At 140. So that's one story <laughs> that uh, he just didn't have. He didn't. He felt like he he had this sense of noble urgency. He didn't have time to um, rest. But <coughs> another story is just that he maybe slept, or at least rested his mind, but he didn't lie down. This may be a more, um, a more, uh, reasonable story, because otherwise the story is quite reasonable, right? I mean, (laughs) occasionally people are born at 60 years old, but it's not that common, but, uh, so, um, there is this practice. The Buddha, the Buddha offered this practice. He did not require it, but he said, if people want to maintain a kind of energy, they can, um, amongst you monks, if you want to, you can sleep sitting up. But you don't have to. And I myself, the Buddha, actually like to lie down at night. So you're welcome to do that too. I like to lie down on my right side. <clears throat> but if you feel like your zazen will be more invigorated by sleeping, sitting up. You're welcome to. Uh, so there are some people, because the Buddha taught that, didn't require it, but um, offered it as a possible practice. Some people are just like Parshva. They just um, want to practice every possible practice. So um, I first discovered this at um, this temple called um, City of 10,000 Buddhas in Ukiah, California. It's the the first place I went to practice Zen, Chinese Zen. And um, 
I was amazed to see that, at least at that time, which was a while ago, like 30-something years ago, um, that the um, the whole monastic community slept sitting up. <laughs> they, they never lay down. Yeah. There are some places like that. So, um, so it's not like it's impossible. And like, not just for retreats, but apparently they never, I mean, for like decades, they would not lie down. Um, this was amazing to me. And I saw it because I was in the Sashin and, and there was a, um, <clears throat> it was really cold. They also didn't heat the place. So they had this one room with a, with a stove, wood stove. And so, um, if you wanted a warmer place to sleep, you could leave your individual room and sit in this kind of bigger room together. So a lot of people were sitting there and you, and, and, uh, you could see them sleeping. They were leaning against the wall. Otherwise you'd kind of fall over. Uh, and, um, and that's a sheen. That was like, like, um, the schedule was outrageous. They would, um, they would, first period of Zazen would begin at 3 a.m. and the last period would end at 12 midnight. And it was just Zazen. It was like, um, I think hour long periods with 20 minute walking in between. And, uh, and they only had one vegan meal every day at lunch. And, uh, that was the way they always had one meal a day and they always sat up, but, but they didn't always have that sashin schedule. They only had one annual sashin, but it was three weeks long. <laughs> 21 days of that, of that schedule with a maximum of three hours sleep and the, um, and, uh, somehow I came in early one time or something and I saw that there were not everyone, but like half of the monks were like, they would just stay there in the zendo since they're all sitting up anyway, no reason to go home, right? So they just stay at their seat and sit zazen through the three hours, um, of so-called sleep. <laughs> so, um, so there are practices like this, right? And, um, would I recommend it? <clears throat> Only if the conditions arise for it to happen. You can't decide to do that kind of thing anyway, right? Just like Hueka didn't decide to cut off his arm. <clears throat> but Parshva, the conditions seem to ar- arise from some past karmic thing of like, I want to practice like that. And uh, so the Buddha said, if you're conditioning's like that, I'm not going to stop you. Oh, um, no, I, I didn't do it. I didn't have to. It wasn't a rule, but, and I was, it was my first sashin ever. So I was like, <laughs> I was like new to practice. So I was like, it's, you know, I, I couldn't barely follow that schedule. After a while, I said, um, do you have any like work practice for me to do? <laughs> and they said, um, yeah, you could, you could paint some of these rooms and stuff. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just in awe that, that people would practice that way. One, one later, I've been. In fact, I was just at this temple um, a couple of weeks ago, stopping by because they have a great vegan restaurant. 
<laughs> and uh, they have a huge Buddha hall, and there were people practicing in there. <clears throat> and um, and and uh, I, over the years, I, I went back and I befriended one of the monks, and I asked him, "How, how do you?" How do you manage this sitting up thing, like without falling over? Can I see your setup? I said, sure. I'll, you can see my room. He had a, his um, his dorm room, and he had his or his personal room. He had these bookshelves that like stuck out from the wall that were about this far apart. So he kind of like sit, like leaned back on against the wall between the shelves, so he couldn't fall this way and that way. <laughs> And he wore his okasa like this to sleep, you know. And then uh, when the wake-up bell goes, just open your eyes and stand up and you're ready to go. <laughs> so it's, um, and he, he said, um, he said, it's not that easy a practice at first. Like the first couple of months, I think he said. Like it takes a while to get used to it. The first couple of months, you just don't sleep that well. And, but after a couple of months, like many things, you get used to it. And then, and then once you get you, your body adapts to it, then he said it's great because it's, you really do feel like your sleep is, is lighter and kind of energetic. Your, your prana is flowing nicely. And so you can just open your eyes and you're ready to go. Um, there's some yogic benefits to that. <clears throat> so, um, but I did try it once, um, uh, in my early days at Tassahara, I was inspired by stories of Parshva and these ancestors. And so I would take my vacations and I'd go sit in this cave in the mountains. And it just, partly just the cave wasn't big enough to stretch out my legs. It was like, it was like a little overhang and then it dropped down. So it wouldn't have been good to stretch out too far and go to sleep. So, so I had a sitting platform just big enough to sit on. So there I tried <coughs> that practice on some retreats. And um, I can't say that I enjoyed it. <laughs> um, but it was also okay, you know. It's like, I think probably most of us have had to try sleeping in airplanes sometimes, this kind of thing, if you can tilt back a little bit, but you can't fully lie down. And, you know... Don't sleep so well, especially when the airplane's bumping around and loud. But um, but it's possible, or like in a car seat, right? If you can lean back. And then in in Japanese Zen, they have these um, chin rests that are like a like a stick with a little padded um, notch for your chin, and then the other end uh, rests in your mudra. And so it keeps it, so you can't quite topple over. So, um, <coughs> so maybe we can understand it just as, it's just a practice of enthusiastic energy. And maybe for, in Parshva's case, it was like, I just don't have time to deeply fall asleep because I'm 140. So, um, so here's some stories of the ancient ancestors that may inspire us or may um, depress us <laughs> or may make us wonder, what's that all about anyway? What's the, what's the point of that? What's the point of anything for that matter?
And that's a good question to ask. And then we have this practice of, um, um, if the conditions are such that you remember while sitting or, or anytime, like right now, there might be some thoughts arising, probably for everyone, unless you're in some deep samadhi, um, there's some thoughts happening. And we can ask at any time, but especially if we're really caught up in them. Maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Just especially any time. Because maybe at first it's easier when we're not that caught up in them, because when we're really caught up in them, we're not going to even remember to this new thought. So just any time we remember it, where is this thought happening? It's happening in the space of awareness, mind. Where is this mind? Where is this awareness? It's not anywhere. Which kind of means that the thought actually isn't anywhere either. And what's the point of such a practice? Of such a thought? Uh, there's a kind of spaciousness. There's a kind of shift of perspective into like a more spacious um, <clears throat> perspective on on our thinking. We still might be involved in the thought to some extent. At the same time, uh, there can be a kind of almost like peripheral awareness that um, this very thought that I'm thinking through right now is um, is actually being hosted by this spacious presence that doesn't. Um, have any judgment about the thought. The thought itself is the judgment, right? I think all judgments, self-judgments and other judgments are actually thoughts. But the space of awareness itself is incapable of judgment. All it can do is just graciously allow judgments to arise and to cease. It's just aware of judgments without itself being a judgment or a judge. It's almost like the opposite of judgment because it's, it's, it's just, um, it's just graciously hosting. It's allowing, it's allowing any possible thought to arise, um, without discriminating amongst them. That's how gracious it is. All these guests, thoughts coming and going, and the awareness um, allows every type of guest. So if if we are not so identified as the guest, but more uh, expand our identity to um, be the host, then um, <coughs> then we are quite gracious. Our true self is quite gracious. Do you have any um, questions or comments? Clarifications of um, such a practice? Yes? So one thing I heard uh, is that, especially during like, longer meditation retreats, your body naturally adjusts to you know, lack of sleep. 
I think so. That may not be true for everyone, but um, the question is, uh, if you're sitting a longer retreat or something, um, does the body uh, kind of adapt to this new kind of life and need less sleep? That's generally my experience. Is uh, has been that um, <clears throat> that uh, in sashin by the end of sashin, if I try to sleep my normal amount, I just lay awake. I, Actually can't see, but I have heard people say the opposite too. That actually it's exhausting. Sashin is like that. I actually need more sleep. So um, I think it depends on on the individual, and uh, it might depend somewhat on um, on if we're re- if Sashin if there's a lot of resistance in Sashin, like I'm just I'm in like survival mode to get through it. I just can't stand it. I'm committed to finishing, but when is it going to end? If we're spending a lot of the day like that, that is exhausting, right? That kind of resistance. But if it's more like, I just surrender, kind of like, whatever. I'll just be like space. And just if it is really painful, but on the cushion here, I'll just allow that guest to to camp out in my cushion. And uh, it's okay. It's all okay. As we start to get expand more into that uh, awareness, then then I think we that kind of gives us energy. Yeah. <coughs> yes. So, on the topic of thoughts. Um, Conceptually, yes, I, I understand that thoughts arise, or maybe our awareness um, mm-hmm. itself. Um, they're not located anywhere, but experientially, they still seem to be up here, by and large. Um, yeah, I can kind of move them around and stuff, but by and large, they're still here. And so, the head area. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just me and you guys don't have custody of your thoughts and they're like bouncing around and that's why I'm so traumatic. But anyway. Um, no, I know what you mean. I ha- I had the same thought myself. So, yeah. any suggestions? Mm. I've kind of worked with that before to try and maybe expand. Mm-hmm. But any suggestions on how to diffuse that? Yeah. Yeah. I think especially when being really, um, when we're really focused on certain thoughts, we're trying to work out certain thoughts or something like that, almost um, obsessively narrowing in on some kind of thinking pattern. It's sometimes, I find, like, I get, like, a headache, right? And probably others have that experience. That that, um, it, it does have, like, a lot of thinking activity does seem to be more associated with the head and probably because there is a relationship between the brain, um, and the electrical impulses of thinking and so on. Um, so with, if just more like, um, lo- more lower level kind of thoughts, it's not really concentrated, um, then I notice it's, they seem less associated with the head. But still, I, it's, if I imagine, can I imagine my thoughts, 
kind of circulating around my like little toe or something. It seems like not, it doesn't seem natural to think that way. Um, no, they do. We're, we're more used to, um, it feeling like it's up here. So if that's the case, then, um, we could also do the practice of now there's, there's thinking going on and there's also, um, an experience called, um, like a subtle sensation or feeling in the head area. It's almost like if our thoughts are really active and it does feel like a, almost like a pressure or um, subtle sensation in the head, then we have this, in addition to the thoughts which are experiences, we have this other particular experience called a subtle sensation in the head. Just like we have an experience of color and sound, now we have sensation in the head. So we could do the same practice. We notice that, that there's thoughts and they maybe are connected with the sensation in the head and we can ask this question, where is this sensation, this subtle sensation that I call in the head, where is this sensation happening? And maybe it would first say, in the head. <laughs> and we say, yeah, but that's, that's, uh, um, But is it actually like, is the sensation like, um, actually inside the skull or something? The sensation is an experience. What is it that's experiencing the sensation? It's mind. It's, it's awareness again. So even if there's a sense of location, where is this sensation that we're calling in the head? Where is it experientially? This is a little more subtle now, but we see that this this experience that seems to be located is happening in awareness. That really is where it's happening. And again, where is awareness? It's not anywhere. So same thing with like, with like the, um, <clears throat> the Buddha over there on the altar, the visual image of this Buddha with this radiant halo. Um, I'm having an experience of seeing that Buddha. Where is that... Um, where is that experience located? First we say, over there, 20 feet over there. But um, again, we ask more, um, even more deeply and experientially. Well, actually, the experience is happening in awareness. The image, the visual image of the Buddha is um, experientially, if I look carefully, it is happening in awareness. It's not happening outside of awareness. And where is that awareness located? Nowhere. So in that way, there's a located, a located visual experience is a little bit like a located um, sensation or even a located thought. We could explore it in just the same way. Where is this sense of location located? It's located in awareness, which is not located. It's a little bit subtle. There, but, um, but same, same, um, stepping back. Does that make sense? Can you actually practice it as we speak of it? We're very habituated to relating to location and fixating on all these separate locations. I, 
I, Kokyo, am really located over here, right about here. I can give you my GPS coordinate. <laughs> This is where myself resides. This GPS location. We're very used to thinking that way. And our self is located, and the world is located over there, separate from me. That's our usual perspective. So we're challenging that perspective with these thoughts. It's, it's not that we eliminate the sense of bodily location, but we're, we're, we're less and less identified with the, lo- with the located body as our true identity. Our true identity is, um, can become more and more unlocated while still having a sense that there's a person in a, with a body over here. you for your patient presence. I told you I've been flapping gums a lot this week, and uh, I'm sorry um, if I could control it. Um, I would. <laughs> But it's just how the conditions are arising, and so... Um, but still, I can, uh, as a person, uh, apologize if it's hard to sit here for so long. Uh, Please take good care. <laughs>